I like discovering a, a period or a moment of recent history that I don't know about, and and somehow by un, understanding it more, you get to understand the modern world more because you understand a bit more about how we got where we got to. Hello, and welcome to the Young Vic Podcast. This is a special one-off two-part episode with three pieces of Young Vic work. And if you're wondering why I'm being all numerical here, well, it is because in these two episodes, we will be looking at leadership and at competition, but I guess equally at collaboration. And in one case, quite literally, we're looking at the play, The Collaboration, and discussing it with writer Anthony McCartan and director Kwame Kweyama. We will also be talking about the play Best of Enemies with writer James Graham. And we're proud to present to you two pieces of work made by young and emerging talent connected to the Young Vic. One by one of the young people that our Taking Part department works with, but also a brand new audio piece created especially for the Young Vic podcast. Best of Enemies opened at the Young Vic in 2021 in a co-production with Headlong directed by Jeremy Herrin. The play transferred to the West End at the end of 2022. Now let's quickly recap what the play is about. And to stay within the, the, the fast-moving world of television news where that play takes place, I'm going to try and do it as a 60-second news item. Five, four, three. 1968 is an election year and America is deeply divided. In amidst mass protests and political turmoil, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party are both holding their primaries to select their candidates. It is also a pivotal year in television broadcasting because for the first time and in full color, all the major news networks will point their cameras at the heart of American politics. And as fledgling news network ABC and they devise a new format to try and come out on top in the ratings war. So every night, they bring two heavyweights of political commentary to go head-to-head -head live on air in front of millions. On the one side, there is author and intellectual Gore Vidal to represent the perspective of progressive liberal America. And on the other side, writer and commentator William F. Buckley brings in the conservative voice. These two debate the moral and the political dividing lines of their country, but in doing that, they also introduce television punditry as a new format, a format that will come to change how we engage with media and politics forever. Best of Enemies sits in a line of political plays that have become the signature of writer James Graham. After plays like Privacy, uh, This House, Labour of Love and Inc., but also TV work like Coalition and Brexit the Uncivil War, the prolific playwright has now turned to American politics. I wanted to find out what drove James to write this play and also what his process is. Now, this interview was conducted over Zoom during the play's run at the Young Vic, so do bear that in mind when you hear the audio. Can I begin by asking you a little bit about the genesis of Best of Enemies? Um, of course, it's a real story. How did the story find you and what made you decide to take it on? Uh, it was one of those disgusting streamer algorithms that found it for me. So the things I normally, <laughs> I hate, it was, yeah, it was just um, the documentary that the play is based on. Uh, I, I saw it on my on my uh, Netflix feed and I thought, well, that sounds great. It looks exactly up my street. It's political theatre, but um, uh, about something I knew almost nothing about. I didn't know anything about these, these men or 1968 or American television news. And I suppose I get really excited about... Um, I know that phrase 
yeah, we get told as writers, you meant to write about what you know. I sort of get infinitely more excited about writing about something I know nothing about and, and the prospect of um, going to have to meet people and enter worlds and understand systems, how you run an American news channel, what these debates were, learning about these men and their writing. I got I got excited by the, the daunting prospect of that. It's a process of trying to find stories uh, or characters that just speak to whatever fear or anxiety you have about the world at the time is and my main um anxiety i would say at the moment is about conversation and how we talk to each other and how we achieve the necessary radical changes that have to happen if we can't speak or communicate in a way that you that perhaps we used to more effectively and can you say this bit about unlocking your way into this uh like at what point did you discover so to speak the the key where you knew how you were going to turn this into a drama. I suppose the first challenge when you're adapting something from a different medium is, is like bluntly how you make it theatre. I knew that the debates were going to be a major part of it because there's something about that language and how they spoke to each other as well as what they said to each other in a way that feels so much of its time, just the language they used and the space they had to... Uh, unpack these big philosophical poetical ideas on on primetime network television but then you just have to ask well what's what's my story what's the story i want to tell and it, it felt like we were living through our own 1968 moment uh, there were all these all these explosions of anger and rage around the world against injustice and then it's about um, the joy of theatre. I get to take these characters behind the scenes into their hotel rooms and their homes and their private lives and their relationships. But to be fair, you do more than that, though, because in a way there is there are three strands to this play. There, is, there are the debates. There is the dramatising of how the debates came to be, both the preparation of these characters and the network executives. And then there's the jumping through time and presenting all of these other characters who were around them in their in their periphery, some really well-known, some lesser-known. I'm trying to remember what order that that happened in. I mean, I mean the joy, you know, the great joy of making a play is really, I, I never felt like I was on my own during this this process. And it was Kwame Kwame who came to me with the uh, the encouragement to, to try and pursue adapting a documentary that I loved, and he, he was a great champion of it. But I already knew, I knew it was Jeremy Heron directing. We had Bunny Christie, who was designing. And conversations with them actually really helped to create the world and the form that the, the story was going to going to sit in. And I guess I just I was, I, I was able, of course, also to manage that, imagine that space. I knew it was going to be in the in the the, the Young Vic Theatre. And I guess there was something about all these environments where the play is set. They're set in a television studio. They're set in a debating hall in Cambridge. It's set in a um, a music lounge or a, a, a protest. Or, and they all just felt very, very public. So I think we knew from very early on that that space should feel um, like the, the physical gathering of that space as an audience was going to be really important. And how the play erupted around during these explosions of culture or music or style or anger or, or, or snippets from a debate um so i guess ultimately and this is probably really obvious and stupid thing to say but there's something about the documentary nature of the original source material informed a kind of documentary style of, of theater something that you would hard cut frequently and bounce around different worlds and just be very quite quite free um in it but it was it was ultimately just the, the liveness of it for me i, I knew i knew 
again, like really obvious thing to say because it's theatre and every, every piece of theatre is live, but I thought the presence of the audience and the way that we could have Aretha Franklin pop up somewhere and just sing a burst of song uh, or Jimmy Baldwin cut to a, a, an explosion of anger and rage from one of his public debates and then get back to the story. There's something about that rhythm I, I think I settled on quite early. Um, and as you said, um, there are some differences between making documentary and making a piece of theatre. Um, how, how worried or concerned were you about how much cultural knowledge the audience would bring into knowing when and where this is happening? Uh, how much of that world did you feel you, 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 you had to build for us? My rule is always that an audience should, shouldn't have to know a single damn thing about any of these people or American television news or the politics and culture of 1968. I think if that's the case, then 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 you failed. But then then the balance, the tricky balance is how you then don't patronize or over explain to an audience who is more familiar, who maybe grew up at that time or knows the work of James Baldwin or Gore Vidal or William F. Buckley. So yeah, it's how you make it accessible, but not um, uh, not um, not exclusive. And I, I, I mean, to be honest, my process is I, I take far too much material into the rehearsal room, which is probably evident from some of the plays that may feel sometimes overstuffed with stuff. But 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 it, I, I I don't know how else to work really. So so in that sense, you trust your director, your creative team, and your actors to guide you with those conversations in those early weeks about what is not making sense, what is overexplained what needs more cultural or historical context to, to get the power out of a particular moment or a character beat. I, I really rely on my collaborators to help me get there. And then of course the audience, which uh, it's, it's the frightening few previews that you get where you, you test it in front of an audience and you know when you've lost them or you can just sense when they don't understand something or they've got it. And for some reason I'm still bloody talking and I need to cut more and more and more. It's uh, it's very organic and, and exciting for that reason. So would you feel that we'd prefer to be in the rehearsal room redrafting rather than trying to deliver a sort of a perfect rehearsal draft before day one? Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, I'm not sure that the actors prefer that process, but um, the joy of a, of a new of a new play, the, the new writing culture uh, in theatre, is that you really are building it together as a, as a, as a group. And these actors are originating these parts and eventually take responsibility for them away from you because they, they start to take them on board themselves. And, and yeah, as I say, somebody, I think it can be, um, you have to hold your nerve because it is, obviously you would prefer to, I guess some people would prefer to march into day one of rehearsal with a script that just just screams genius and perfection. Everyone goes, how did you do it? Gosh, it's just wonderful. I, that's not me. I go in and go, it's not ready yet. I'm sorry, but I need to be in a room to, to work it out. Now with this one, of course, you write in the voice of multiple real people, but two very prominent and distinguished real people because you are using actual debates. How much um, of what uh, Buckley and Vidal are saying, and especially in the debate scenes, how much of that is verbatim? Yeah. And how much of that is your edit and edition? I guess one of the rules I gave myself was that when the cameras are on and when they're in the debating chairs, that basically what Buckley and Vidal say to each other is verbatim. Um, I had to bend and bend that rule a little bit occasionally because once you get it up on its, its feet, sometimes, like frankly, I know they're geniuses and I'm not, but frankly, they sometimes needed a bit of help to get to their point a bit quicker for the theatre of it to, to work outside of the, the confines of the debates. So you already have a voice for your two main characters, history and YouTube has provided it for you. Who the hell am I to try and um, even get close to replicating and authentically uh, reimagining re re their voice? Particularly, I think someone like Gore Vidal, who was known for his 
incredible waspish anecdotes and his his um his cutting almost Oscar Wildean kind of um turns of phrase that that make everybody laugh. You think, oh God, I can't how am I gonna even come close to authentically matching a voice like that? But I think once once you get going, um you start to because because they 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 sort of live rent free in your head for months and months and months. The rhythms and their intonations and their verbal styles almost become second nature. You do start to think about them, and that was really fun. So once you sort of got that, it's in a way it's a bit like learning an instrument. Once you got the clarinet down, you can start playing your own notes. And um, do you take them all on at the same time? Like are you literally? sort of ping-ponging between Baldwin, Buckley and Vidal in your head or do you spend a couple of weeks sort of living in the voice of Vidal and then shifting to the other? Did you start with the documentary material to have a jumping off point or what's the... Yeah, good question. What was the... What good was the question, I don't know. Um, I think I, I must have bounced around all the different voices and, 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 and I'll be honest, lockdown helped with that because I found myself with probably more time than I may have done to actually just read their work, read their novels, their essays, listen to their interviews. And I think I probably bounced around all of them. And actually, James Baldwin doesn't feature in the documentary. That was someone I wanted to bring in as an as a, as a important um, voice. Uh, and in a way, once you start writing, you, you, I, I find myself going back to their work more and more so you don't do all the research and then you start the play. They kind of feed and speak to each other and you realise you've got a slight... It might be a literal gap in knowledge about some elements of their biography or their life. You need to go and check, or you feel like you are you're underserving their their voice, and you just need to go and top yourself up with some some Baldwin or some uh, Aretha Franklin or something that just makes you um that can can get that fuels your car in a way to get you through the scenes. In, in broader terms, now you've you've got a, a prolific body of work, a lot of plays that dramatise the historical. Uh, what draws you to to that kind of work? You know, sometimes I like worry sometimes that I I I I've fallen so so consistently into a rhythm of, of adapting real life stories that I don't know if I can make up anything anymore. And I'm sure that I'm sure I can. I do have ideas in my head about my own fictional universes, but I I get such satisfaction both in watching and in writing stories that that uh, have actually happened. Like bluntly that's it that, that i don't think they're any more or less impactful than than fictional universes but i i i, I like i like discovering a, a period or a moment of recent history that i don't know about and and somehow by un, understanding it more you get to understand the modern world more because you understand a bit more about how we got where we got to and they don't even i think we think when we think of history plays we we there's a reverence to them they don't shouldn't have probably and they don't earn because you know you think of great battles and kings and queens and shakespeare plays and and i i find it more fun and more messy to to go for the less obvious um less immediately um evident moments of significance but that somehow they tell us something about our particularly britain but about people and uh, I'm, I'm quite nerdy about how things work as well. So I think plays pre present a great opportunity to understand systems, and that system might be something as insignificant as how, how does a game show work and how do you build a game show? Um, how did pundits get invented? How did these debates, which seem so common to us now, where you get someone famous from the left and someone famous from the right to be on television and be arguing, um, to go back to the 1960s and understand that that 
was a radical idea in the age of only broadcast journalists, all men, all white, all with moustaches, um, sit in front of a television and tell you the facts. How did that culture break down to a world where opinions and commentary, commentary became the driving um, voice in our discourse? I like I like missions, I suppose, as well. I, I, I think a lot of my plays are a bit like sports movies, where you get the underdog team who are really who are doing really badly. Uh, the only way they're going to get to the top of the league is by changing the system. Oh yeah, I like I like missions. I like missions that accidentally change the culture of the world that they they live in. One of the things that struck me watching some of the Vidal Buckley debates they are they are lengthy, they are perhaps verbose. Yeah, yes, they are conducted in a way that we wouldn't really hold debates these days anymore. They require a lot of your attention span. Is there something liberating in placing that in the theatre where equally, you know, you, you know you will have people for two and a half hours taking in the same story at the same time? Yeah, liberating and terrifying. Like, we, we didn't know um, until the very first preview whether... Is it interesting theatre? Does it will it hit the back of the, uh, the the audience and will something catch fire? But I hope because you're loading with other things, you're also watching two men who hate each other, uh, joust for, for supremacy, and you're watching an experiment by the television network play out, and there is risk and consequence to that. And I think it's probably the audience's favourite moments of the play, which. I'm, you know, I don't mind if, if it's if none of that's my language. They'd prefer the, um, yeah. I'm happy to hand the baton over to Gore and Buckley and then be the most charming elements of the play, um, as they should be. <laughs> Final question then. Looking at your, uh, as is a prolific writing career, what was the best email you ever sent and what was the best email you ever received? That is a great and horrible question. Uh, I think, well, the very first this is dating me because it wasn't an email, it was a letter. Um, let me explain what that is. You print that off, you put it in an envelope, you put a stamp on it, and you have to go to a building where they take it off you. Um, I think it was a letter that I sent to the Finnbury Theatre when I was 20 or 21, and I was working on a stage door in a theatre uh, up in Nottingham, and I was trying to write plays and get feedback on them and didn't know whether this was going to be a viable career. And I finished a play, a full-length play, and 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 sent it to a theatre in London, which I researched, and they did these kinds of dweeby historical plays. There's a play about Albert Einstein. And um, so I sent that off, and I'm glad I did that, and I'm glad I did put the time and the effort in to, to work out where and who to send it to that would be most um, helpful to me, I think. And I remember getting the phone call and um, and the, the, the response being incredibly positive, so that was, that was great. I do remember... I did a play at the National Theatre, and that was a commission that I, I was really excited about, but frankly overwhelmed by it as well. I'd been writing for about 10 years, and it was a National Theatre commission, and I think I overemphasized it in my head as the, one of the first major London theatres to commission me to do a thing. So, and then I, you know, then you just email it off and live your life. And I remember getting the email back that I didn't open for about eight hours, because um, I saw the subject heading. And eventually I opened it on a tube. I don't know why. I opened it on a tube, I think, because I wanted to be in public when I discovered that I couldn't write plays and that I was going to be told to quit. And um, it was an incredibly positive response to uh, I remember feeling very um, happy and excited about that. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing all of those wonderful insights with us. You're welcome. Shortly after Best of Enemies played at the Young Vic, another new play opened here the collaboration. 
and coinciding with Best of Enemies' move into the West End, the collaboration transferred to Broadway, again directed by the Young Vic's artistic director, Kwame Kwayama. I will be talking to the collaboration's writer, Anthony McCartan, in the second part of this podcast episode. But first, we go to Tyler. Tyler is one of the participants in the Young Vic's Young Leadership Programme, which is one of the many initiatives by taking part. Taking part department of the Young Vic is our participatory arts um, arm of the organisation. So our focus is making work um, with our local communities of Lam- uh, Lambeth and Southwark. Um, and that is really anyone in the local community. So we work with young people, we work with older people over the age of 25, and we work with schools and colleges. That's Lorna McGinty, the participation producer of the Young Vic's Creative Engagement Department, taking part. We make theatre with those people, we support them in their creative development, and we also support them, particularly the young people, in their sort of more kind of professional development. Um, So our job really in taking part is to open our doors to everyone in our local community and ensure that we, as a theatre, are serving our community in the way that they want and need. Lorna looks after the Young Leadership Programme. So the Young Leaders Programme is part of our participation strand of work, so it's um, focused on young people. Um, And the idea of it is that we're bringing young people in to learn about leadership Um, generally, but leadership particularly in the creative and cultural sectors. So they've heard and met, they've heard from and met lots of different leaders across the sector um, and learning about how different people approach leadership, how people um, see themselves as leaders and and the kind of values that drive their style of leadership. Um, What we've also done is encourage them to think about themselves as leaders as well, think about what's important to them, the change they want to see in the world um, and how they might affect that change and how they might develop their own style um, and approach to being a leader in, in the different facets of their of their life, both now and what their ambitions for leadership might be in the future. And here's Tyler in conversation with Kwame Kweyama. Hello. Hello again. Yeah. <laughs> um, so let's start off with you telling us a little bit about the production, the collaboration and what this production means to you personally. Well, as an AD, I always want to create an experience, I want an experience that, that feels unique, an experience that, that, that feels particular to the young Rick, um, while telling a really good story. And what the collaboration did was allow me to kind of uh, create a DJ vibe of the 1980s while investigating the emotional hinterland and the spiritual hinterland of two of the greatest uh, 20th century artists. And so um, it, it kind of, it meant a lot because it allowed me to tell the story of Basquiat and Warhol while um, trying to entertain um, at the same time. Uh, in my previous interview, I say that like I've done so many, but um, I was interviewing Paul Anthony Morris, who was working on The Conundrum, um, and he was the writer and director on that project. Whilst this, you had the writer Anthony McCartan. Um, and you directed, um, how does the director work with the writer in the creation of a production? And how do you think that differs from someone like Paul who does both? Well, I think, I, I think that they are, um, they're not mutually exclusive. I think that a director who writes and a writer who directs um, can employ both subjectivity and objectivity, often at the same time, but certainly um, when, for instance, you've written a scene and actors are performing it and you're leaning back and you're, you're seeing it. So I'm not one of those who believes that a director um, or that a writer shouldn't direct their own work. 
I, I, I don't believe in that. And <clears throat> when they are separate, um, I think you're there as a director to be the first audience member and to hear it as if you were the first audience member. And sometimes you can use that to reflect back to the writer. That is, it, is the thing that you want to say, are you saying it? Um, and I think that's mainly how Auntie and I worked. Um, a big part of leadership is working with others, which is obviously perfect for this production being called The Collaboration. So how do you work as a director? You, how do you collaborate with your actors or your technical team? I mean, when you're putting on a show, because I know some, every director is slightly different the way they work. Some are quite adamant in what they want, their particular vision, whilst others are more liberal in letting their actors make a lot more of their own choices and in that way letting them have more sort of agency over their work. So where do you think you stand I think that? I think every director has a perception of who they are. It doesn't mean that that is what they are. So my perception of what I am is that I'm collegiate, is that I have a vision, I know what I'm, a destination I'm trying to get to, and I don't know what every corner looks like on the way there. And so the reason why I employ the best actors that I can is because they will add a dimension that my brain will not. The reason why I try to work with the best creatives is because they'll be able to take an idea that I have and they'll be able to polish it up and make it into something that's gleamy and shiny as opposed to the dull thing that I may have handed them. I believe the best idea in the room is the best idea in the room um, for two reasons. Number one, it serves the work. And number two, I get the praise if it works. <laughs> I say a great decision by the director. So there is no, uh, there is no downside to, um, to being open to ideas. There is a moment when you have to make executive decisions. That's the kick. But I like to, um, I, I like to leave space for people to do their art. Um, you are also the artistic director of the Young Vic here. Mm -hmm. I mean, what sort of leaders or artists or particular works really sort of interest you when you're choosing what to put on at the Young Vic? Um, bold. Really good. Um, often I like artists who can um, find a crack in something that I may not have seen myself. Uh, that's often the sign of a really great artist that they, they see that crack and they excavate it. So I'm interested in those kind of leaders. I'm interested in those kind of people, those kind of visionaries. Um, yeah. And uh, I'm here with the Young Vic Leadership Program. I mean, what do you think some of the qualities are that you really want in a great leader? Honesty, sense of, um, a sense of confidence, the quality to listen and the quality to see, sometimes at the same time. The ability to know who the hell you are while always being informed about who you are. And finally, I mean, what is leadership for you? Leadership is seeing around the corners. Um, it's, it's, it's picking your destination and trying to uh, give everybody else the equipment to help them get you and them there. But ultimately, leadership is service. How are you serving your audience? How are you serving your community? How are you serving your artists? How are you serving? Is ultimately what leadership's about for me. Thank you very much. It's pleasure. A pleasure.
thank you for listening to the first part of this two-part episode. My name is Tone Key, and I hope to see you in the next part. The Young Leadership Interview was edited by Joe Dines and produced by Lorna McGinty. You can find out more about the Young Vic on our website, youngvic.org, and there you will find more information on both Best of Enemies and the collaboration, but also on the Young Vic's activities with taking part. You can find the Young Vic on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram too, at Young Vic Theatre, and on YouTube at Young Vic London. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.